Welcome to the Customer Experience Management Podcast, hosted by Anders Gustafsson and Carlos Velasco. In this episode, Carlos interviews Dr. Manuel Perea and PhD student Melanie Lapouche about what makes brand names special from the perspective of cognitive psychology. Welcome everyone to the Customer Experience Management Podcast. Uh, this is the first uh, episode with guests in the fourth season. And I have two very special guests, uh, Manuel and Melanie. And we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic. So if you have listened to our previous podcasts, we have talked about customer journeys, you know, and customer experiences, of course. And in the customer journey, there are a number of touch points. Um, and within this world of touch points, there is a very critical one, which are brand names. Brand names are a very, very uh, special touch point, uh, one that many companies take kind of like a lot of effort to decide on. Startups also sometimes struggle to, to choose them. And there is uh, there, there are like a lot of hidden elements in the sort of like context of how to choose and, you know, what is actually a good brand name and, you know, what makes a, a brand name kind of like special. So we're going to be talking about that today. And as I said, I have two very special guests. So let me introduce them to you. The first one is Professor Manuel Perea uh, at the University of Valencia. He has exten extensive psychological research experience. He was a postdoc at the University of Massachusetts, has been a visiting scholar at institutions such as MIT, Northwestern University, the University of Arizona, and Riken Institute. He's uh, currently associate editor of several psychology journals, such as the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology, the Journal of Cognition, and he has published influential work on modeling, reading, cognitive neuroscience in several journals, such as Psychological Review, Cognition, Trans and Cognitive Science, Psychological Science, among others. And in addition to Manuel, we also have Melanie Labouche. Uh, she's a researcher at the Faculty of Psychology at the University of Valencia. She's currently pursuing her PhD in Education and Cognitive Processes at Nebrija University. Uh, she obtained a degree in Cognitive Sciences from the uh, University of Onnesbruck. I hope that I'm saying that right uh, in Germany. A master's degree in Neuropsychology from the University of Madrid in the Netherlands and a master's degree in Brain and Cognition from the University of uh, Pompe Fabra in Spain. Her current research uh, centers in the study of cognitive processes underlying reading and language, and as a result, she has published several articles in journals of impact and has given presentations in several international congresses as well. So as you can see, they have extensive experience uh, in uh, psychological research, and one of the topics that they have been diving to is in what makes brand names special. So we're going to be talking about that, but before we dive into the topic, uh, welcome Melanie and Manuel. Uh, I would like to just welcome you to the podcast and also give you the opportunity to expand a little bit on who are you and you know what what are you up to these days well thank you for having us we are really excited to talk about our research topic here and yeah looking forward to talk more about brand names sure yeah i mean uh thank you very much for uh, inviting us and it was a pleasure uh, to have you here in valencia a few days ago actually and um so we can start by the beginnings is why we started in the laboratory, studying brand names, maybe. Yeah, actually, that's uh, a, a very good starting point, yeah. Hmm. Which is, in some cases, in this case, was kind of by chance, because um, that was like um, nine years ago, I had a student, and, and she was interested in human factors rather than in 
cognitive psychology, which is what we do the most. And then uh, we thought, okay, we want we like working with words, word recognition, but she was interested in in marketing. So then um, a common ground was, okay, what about brand names? And uh, there has been very, very little work until then. Uh, and then what we wanted to do was, okay, we know that, okay, uh, for the general audience, uh, some um, typically the idea is that when we encounter a word, uh, printed word, written word, it creates a memory, a memory trace. And uh, in a typical word like house, table, chair, uh, these words are presented in, in multiple formats, um, lowercase, in uppercase, with this font, this other font, and so on. But with brand names, typically, for instance, IKEA, IKEA is presented in uppercase. I mean, we can't even see IKEA with strong letters. Uh, we see, we can think of Adidas, Adidas is lowercase with a very distinctive um, shape of the letters, a very distinctive font. Uh, let's take Amazon, same bold letters. And um, so we did, so we knew that um, in, um, for a typical word, uh, lowercase is faster than uppercase because of the simple reason that most words are presented in, in lowercase because when we read a book, it's not in uppercase. It's it, in uppercase, it will look like if they are shouting at us. Mm -hmm. uh, but what happens in in um, with brand names? So what we did, that was a long time ago, so it was published in the British uh, Journal of Psychology in 2015. It was, let's uh, present uh, words like uh, brand names like IKEA, either in their typical letter case, which is uppercase, or in lowercase, and let's do the opposite with Adidas. In Adidas will be the other way around. Mm -hmm. So what we found was was uh, was not surprising, but what we found was that Adidas was better identified as a brand name in lowercase than in uppercase, even though it was in in abstract terms it should be the same. And uh, for um, for IKEA, it would be better in uppercase, mm -hmm. even though typically uppercase words have a disadvantage, but it's because typically we do, we read words in lowercase when we read a book or most in most scenarios. So this is how we started. So in a way, the mental representation of the of brand names, um, they have information about letter case and probably uh, font, probably uh, the design and um, but remember that we must keep in mind that for common words, table, house, uh, this information, visual information gets lost because of efficiency. I mean, we don't care whether house is written in lowercase, uppercase, Calibri, Times New Roman, any other font. But with brand names, it seems that it matters. And this is the stuff that uh, we have been following on after that, including uh, the work of uh, Pathak um, Velasco a few years ago, which was on lo with logotypes, which was really interesting. Oh yeah, so that's very interesting. And actually, you answered one of my first questions, which was, you know, how how did you end up studying brand names? So you just gave us a little bit of a, a kind of like the, the story of how you ended up uh, studying that, uh, and that is very interesting. And, and I think there is a lot of uh, 
uh, knowledge and understanding that you know cognitive psychology can bring to the processing of brand names and that's basically what you're doing and, and i think this this is kind of like something that i have been an advocate of as well which is trying to connect kind of like more basic research to all the way to the applied aspects such that you can actually have from a very very, very strong you know theoretical understanding how this can be used uh, in different ways so you have i think started you have started to dive into the first article that we want to discuss today which uh, is an article that you published in 2022 in the journal of uh, in the british journal of psychology which is called uh, our brand names special Letter uh, visual similarity affects the identification of brand names, but not common words. So I guess you have given us some hints uh, to the question that I wanted to ask you from this article to start with. But are brand names special? And what makes them special? Melanie? Um, yes, well, um, we did a study about um, brand names, comparing them with with normal words in the end. And we wanted to find out exactly this, if brand names are special or not, and how exactly they are processed um, when when they're written in, um, yeah, in a normal font. So um, we had a set of brand names and uh, we presented these brand names um, with misspellings, basically. Mm -hmm. I, <laughs> yes. I, I wasn't prepared. <laughs> yeah. oh. So they yes. they misspell yeah Sorry. they misspell letter could be similar to the to the original letter let's say from Amazon we replace M with N which they look more or less right. the same or we do we change the M from Amazon to a letter C which looks very different mm -hmm. and then uh, if you do that manipulation with with uh, common words. Uh, People detect the misspelling equally fast, okay, and they don't make any errors. But with brand names, they do. So when you have Amazon uh, and it's written with letter with M instead of M in Amazon, people make mistakes. But if you have if you do the same manipulation with with um, a common word, changing M with N, like uh, I mean, the example was amarillo, which is Spanish for yellow, and then we have anarillo, which is yellow, but with N instead of M. Uh, people, they don't make those mistakes. Uh, so, which means that uh, this visual information with brand names is not completely lost. Remember that for common words, visual information gets completely lost mm -hmm. in the process after 250, 200 milliseconds. I mean, we have uh, evidence using electrophysiological uh, methods. So the, this information gets lost, but with brand names, they don't. And actually, if you transpose two letters, let's suppose that we transpose two letters mm -hmm. uh, from the brand name, which is kind of typical in some counterfeits. Uh, um, if you do that with common words, it's difficult to tell, uh, but at some point people, the people, people realize People realize that there is a misspelling, but with brand names, uh, they make more errors. And if you look at the electrophysiological signal, you cannot tell the real thing from the counterfeit, which means that it's quite dangerous in a way. So in a, it's even more. It's a, in a way, in terms of similarity, re, uh, transposing two letters makes the item more similar than just changing one letter. So mm -hmm. for in terms of uh, 
trials for someone who is using the brand name, the original brand name, the transposition makes, the transposition of two letters makes the original, the, the, the new item very similar to the real one. And one example is one that they went to trial. So there is the chocolate company, which is um, uh, Godiva that everybody mm -hmm. knows. And then there was, I think it was in the US. So they had some cookies stuff for um, dogs. And of course they knew uh, uh, Godiva and they named they, they used the, the term for this product, uh, Dogiva. Which okay. what they did, they transposed the D and the G from Godiva. And of course they went to trial and I think they lost. So mm. Godiva won, but one doesn't know whether it's the lawyers. But actually the thing is that when you transpose two letters, it looks like the real thing. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that that is very interesting, and I think you know maybe for for some of our listeners that not might be necessarily uh, familiar with some of these tasks. You know, typically what they do is they do a task in which they measure well uh, the the speed at which people can identify you know a specific word, uh, and they use brand names and and typical words. And this is actually quite quite relevant because if we look at the context of you know how people look for brands, you know, because typically this would be this would apply, let's say, when we are searching for a brand or something, and then. If you are not able to discriminate because, uh, you know, like you have the original name and then you have names that have some sort of transposition, then you might be actually, you may might end up, end up picking up one of these counterfeit brands even without realizing because the marketplace is full of brand names and lots of different elements, right? And you typically rely in this, in this kind of like fast processing of, in particular, if you know what you want. So this is this is quite interesting. But before I get into the topic of counterfeits, which I think it's uh, one of the the, the interesting, uh, very interesting applications of these that you have explored as well, is I have a question, and is I think something we discussed a little bit when I was there. Um, are brand names similar to any other kinds of words? So I remember that when we talked, we you mentioned this idea of names of countries, for example, which in brand brand literature, I guess some people would consider a country could be a brand itself, not necessarily, but could be. Uh, but are there any other words that you would say, you know, are processed similarly to brands? Um, yes, yeah, so the idea um, or the special thing about brand names is basically that they are always presented in the same visual format. Um, and when you think about other categories of words that are usually presented also in, in the same visual format, um, there are, for instance, city names, which you see most of the time in the typical sign of, of the city name. So, um, a while yeah, like ago, New York, NY, right? Or Amsterdam, I guess, or things like that, exactly. right? Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. So, um, we tried to test similar things um, than the things that we tested with brand names with city names. And actually, we found similar effects. Uh, in city names uh, than in brand names. Maybe not so so strong the effects because mm. still we see city names many times uh, written in different fonts, for instance. Um, but yes, there are similar effects in, in these kind of uh, words that are also normally presented in, in a consistent visual format. That is interesting. And another question that came to mind, and you know, maybe maybe you don't have research for this one, but I want to pick on, on your brains on this is uh, 
to what extent does this depend on, on exposure or familiarity, you know, because maybe you are exposed so strongly to a brand name or maybe not as strongly as general words. I don't know what, what would be a way to look at it, uh, that maybe that influences uh, the way in which you identify and process a brand name. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, the exposure plays a really large role. Um, especially in the in the context of brand names, because when you think about walking down the street, you see so many different brand names, and usually the brand names that you see are always in the same format. So it's words that we are um, highly exposed to, and we're highly exposed to these words in one single format, which uh, somehow affects our memories that we create um, with these brand names. And uh, for normal words, for instance, this um, that we are also exposed to a lot, um, these visual formats usually change. So when we see the word table, um, we see it written in different fonts, we see it written in uppercase and lowercase. So um, so it has a different effect on how these um, these words are stored in our brain. That is interesting because one of the things that people learn, I mean, I guess in, in branding classes or brand management is you need to keep the brand consistent, you know? It's like if you're going to write your name, do it the same way, always present it in the same format, always. And you typically get like this graphic design booklet on how to use the brand. So yeah, that is interesting. Hey, Manolo. Hmm. And there is, uh, there is uh, another element, which is color. Hmm. Uh, so, um, so it's, because it, it's not just the word, it's the design, and it's in many cases the color. Uh, so if we we did an experiment um, with Melanie um, some time ago, uh, recording the electrophysiological signal from the brain, and then what we did is presenting the the brand names, uh, so the logotypes, the original logotypes, and changing the color of the logotypes. Hmm. And then we compared our findings with the findings with natural objects. Let's say strawberries, they tend to be reddish. And uh, looking at some components in the signal, and basically in a way, what we found is that the response uh, to the colors in the, in the brain with brand names mm -hmm. uh, was similar to some degree, I mean, not exactly with natural objects, because I mean, there, is, there is some uh, more variability than with natural objects like fruit and so on. So let's say, let's take strawberries with a funny color, with a different color or with the original color, or we can have a Vodafone or any brand name with the original color or with a different color, but the same design same lettering so we were just changing the color so in a way uh brand, um logotypes are visual objects it's more than that it's th that's why in a way we lose little aspects which makes them more susceptible to counterfeiting for instance so or also that's important to know if one wants to create a new brand name mm which is, uh, I mean, in psychology, there, there are some effects uh, that uh, Melanie and I, we were talking about uh, slightly earlier, which was, for instance, there is an effect, which is the QWERTY effect, mm -hmm. uh, which is the, the effect of the, I mean, the, the letters from, from the keyboard. And typically in cognitive psychology, what some people, it's Daniel Casasanto from Cornell, what he has, what he has found 
was um, that uh, words that are composed from the letters on the right side of the keyboard mm -hmm. are tended to be perceived as more positive than the ones on the left side. And the reason is, of course, why. So one of the reasons that he said is that um, typically most, like 85% of people, they are right-handed. So in a way, they associate right with good. So if you type P-O-M, so this is positive. But if you type D-A-S, that will be more negative. It will be to the left, at least for right-handed people, which are the majority. So there are a number of interesting findings in cognitive psychology that could be applied to brand to branding in a way when one creates a, a brand and so on yeah that is that is super super interesting and I, because it, it also touches on the i mean not only uh, i guess identification which is a very important part of the the process of interacting with brand names but also the valence you know with which the the brand name might be processed but i have a question so there i i'm i'm kind of like seeing a paradox here so we we know that brand names are different, let's say, from general words in in a, in a, in a broad sense. But one of the things that people in when they choose a brand name, what they're trying to do is to make it as distinctive as possible as they can, such that it's not only different, let's say, from words, but also with from other brand names. What can we say from cognitive psychology to make a brand name as different as possible from other brand names? Well, <laughs> and I guess you're, you're mentioning some, some elements, right? It's like it's 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 the name, but it's also a, a few other elements of it, you know, like the word, the, the letters that compose the brand name, you know, I guess there is also like the font, you know, the visual identity of it, the color. Uh, I don't know if anything else comes to mind. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it probably depends on, on, on the product that one is going to try to sell. In a way, because it's, there are probably no general recipes for for doing that. So on the one hand, you want the brand name to be different, uh, but we know that if if the if the word doesn't sound, it's hard to pronounce in a, one's language. That could be tricky, but not necessarily. I mean, we have Hagendas, which yeah. it's kind of. Funny in a way, yeah, because it's an American uh, company, but it looked Danish, but of course it's not Danish. Uh, there are umlauts, so diuresis, uh, and then there are funny combinations of bigrams, like uh, Hagen Das, which I don't, I never remember whether it's SZ or ZS. So it's not easy to remember, but it's so distinct from the others that it works. So in a way, one could think that mm, that's not a good brand name, but actually it is. So because, mm. uh, because I love it, what you're saying, and the reason why I love it is because I mean you you started by saying also like it might be you know context depending. It might depend on the product category, for example, in which you are at. So for example, if you want to be like I don't know like a luxury or a premium brand then you might actually want to use something that is slightly difficult. Maybe you are willing to take the trade-off of difficult to pronounce in quotation marks, uh, just because it's going to make you different and perhaps that makes you rarer, you know, less less approachable in one way that might be more luxury in some way or another. Yeah, and actually I think one one other thing that we, we found um, over and over in our research that we did about brand names is that really the 
the visual format uh, matters a lot in the brand names. So um, maybe it's not necessarily about choosing something that's really, really different from other brands, but being consistent in the visual format and uh, keeping this visual format because in the end we have a really, really strong representation of the visual format of known brand names in our brain and uh, this representation will stay. So when you think about Coca-Cola, for instance, you always think about uh, the white and red color, you think about the iconic font and this is so present um, when we read brand names. Um, that's um, that it always reminds us of this logo. So uh, that's from a marketing perspective. I think that's really nice that brands mm. like Coca-Cola, for instance, or Adidas, Ikea, they um, they manage to to have this strong association to these visual factors. Um, but I think also for um, when you're starting a new company, when you're choosing a name, um, it's relevant to keep in mind to stick to one visual format and to let the brand develop in the way that um, we can make these strong associations to the visual factors of the logotype. That is very nice. And you're touching on the on one of the questions that I wanted to ask you. So maybe we can talk about it now. Is like, so what should entrepreneurs do? Because, you know, like they start with a brand name. I don't know. They pick sometimes randomly with, they don't have a lot of funds. They just, you know, whatever brand name they pick. But then uh, they, they, they are not necessarily recognized, you know, they might be processed as, as a normal world, let's say, but but what you're saying in a way is, you know, consistency, right? It's like consistency. So it doesn't matter in which context you are at, which compared to like other words, like these words just change format regardless of context, you know, regardless of anything. So if they keep this same format across the context in which you are part, across the sort of like situations in which they are, then they can enhance recognition and stuff like that, right? Absolutely. Yes. I think this is one, one thing that, um, startups should keep in mind, should be aware about the effect that, uh, the visual presentation of the brand has on the representations of our brains and use this as an advantage to always be consistent in the, in the visual factors, because in the end, these factors influence how, um, we, we perceive a brand in the end and, uh, I think because of this, it's also um, important to really, when you create a brand, spend the necessary time to have a strong brand representation and to have a logo that you can memorize easily. Hmm. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. Right, so we have a second article that I wanted to ask you about um, that, that in this podcast, which is uh, led by you, uh, Melanie. It's called Visual World Identification Beyond Common Words, the Role of Font and Letter Case in Brand Names. So here you're touching on some of the kind of like, you know, low-level features, I would say, of, of brand names. Uh, so what is this article about and what is it telling us? Um, yeah, so in general, this article oh, by the um, way i need to mention something before before you start and it's like this article is in the process of review at the moment so uh, whenever whenever it's published like if the first article you will be able to access it uh, in the description of the episode uh, once the this article is out i will update the the recording and the description so that you can access this article as well please melanie <laughs> thank you so um, in this article, we wanted to see a bit more in detail in which way brand names are processed differently. And as we mentioned earlier, for normal words, um, usually they're processed in a hierarchical manner so that it doesn't really matter in which uh, font they're written, in which letter case they're written. And um, 
now in this um, in this research with brand names, we wanted to take this a bit to the probe and see uh, to which degree it really matters in brand names, whether you change the font, for instance, of a brand, or whether you change the letter case, you write IKEA in lowercase within the logo, or you write um, the word Amazon with a different font than what we're used to see. So we did two experiments to categorize brand names and their logos. Uh, the first experiment um, was about um, identifying existing brand names um, among brands that, that were invented, <laughs> basically. Mm -hmm. And the second experiment uh, was about uh, brand names um, to categorize them semantically. Um, and we wanted to see the different stages of uh, lexical processing of these brand names in the end. And uh, we measured the response time of, of the people and the accuracy. And uh, what we saw was that um, we, we saw um, in both tasks that people needed longer to respond to uh, misspelled brand names than to the normal brand names. So when you write uh, Amazon in a in a different font, people needed longer to yeah to react to this, or also when it's in a different letter case. And this is really interesting because it's um, as opposed to what uh, what we find in normal words and um, where the visual format of of the words usually doesn't matter. That is super, super interesting. So I guess that that contrasts in a way with letter transposition, right? Um, yes, yes, a bit like um, in this article, we focused a lot about the, the visual presentation of the letters itself. Rather the, so the format rather than the position of the letter. Yeah, I was just thinking that, you know, like one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is about uh, counterfeits at some point, because I think that's, you know, like the, the market is massive and is just taking like a lot of, you know, uh, money, you know, from, from brands that are trying to protect their identity and, and their, their own brands and stuff like that. Uh, but but what we would say here is like you know maybe a counterfeit would be more effective <laughs> by changing by doing transposition than by changing the format right in one way or another. Um, but but yeah I don't know like so how can brands deal you know with with this uh, uh, sort of like counterfeit doing this kind of stuff? That's I mean it's tricky I mean. Um... Some, I mean, as, as we know, some uh, um, chains, let's take, I mean, if we can say Aldi, in a way they have some uh, products that they look alike. I think uh, we have uh, the butter, was Primark. Yeah. Nordpark, Nordpark. Nordark, Nordark versus Lurpark. Mm -hmm. right. uh, one is the original one, the other one is from Aldi. So they look alike, but not that much. Uh -huh. So that's a clever strategy because I mean it's not just it's the first syllable which is different. It looks alike, um, so that's probably in a counterfeit trial that would be tricky to to show. Uh, in others, for instance, there is there used to be because uh, there was a trial and then they lost. I think it was John Lemon, which oh, actually yeah. was a nice <laughs> name. Uh, um, so, because John Lemon, but there is John Lennon. So, the, in a way, Yoko Ono didn't like it. 
which makes uh -huh. sense anyways. And then um, they, so John Lemon lost, so they cannot use that name anymore uh, because it, it looks alike, but in that case, it was clearly too obvious. Plus, I mean, there was a logo and the logo type looked like a singer. I'm not going to say the name. Mm -hmm. to guess um so in, in a way it's, it's tricky so what we can inform um is that transpositions uh are very similar to the real thing when you transpose two letters mm -hmm. uh when you change one letter to one that looks alike like lemon lennon that's very very similar uh mm -hmm. but it's even more important that when you transpose two letters uh the the electric signal from the brain cannot tell apart the original one mm. uh the original one from the counterfeit counterfeited one even not even after 600 milliseconds um after presentation given that when we choose brands we want to buy a product a product uh we don't think that much at the beginning so it's very easy i mean i think that the there are some statistics, like they claim that it's like 20% of the time we have bought something wrongly, thinking, thinking that it was the real thing, but mm. it was a counterfeit product. So, I mean, sometimes we want to buy a counterfeit and we don't mind, cheaper. Uh -huh. but, uh, but in many cases, we don't want to buy a counterfeit. So, I mean, I, I told, uh, I, just before the, the podcast uh, case with my dad some time ago, uh, he bought uh, an, a watch in a market, let's call it market. Mm. Uh, and then he thought that it was a really nice deal. And uh, so so we know a few brand names for watches like Citizen and Seiko. So the one that he got really cheap was Seticon, which is a mixture of two brand names, you know, mm. way from Seiko to Citizen, Seticon. So playing around with, so th these are difficult. I mean, in that case, in, my, in the case of my my dad, he fall for it. He thought it was the the real thing, and, and he was really happy because it was cheap. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is the other thing, right? Like it's and you're saying it correctly. Like sometimes people might just want to buy the the fake thing, right? So. Uh, I I have another question. So you know we, we in a way. These two, these two articles that we have been discussing, what they highlight is the role of, you know, a, a visual similarity as well as kind of like the format, like the visual aspects of, of the, the written thing. Is there any research mixing both of them? Like I see, I mean, I, I, I'm just kind of like thinking of, of, of both, like uh, when, when you go to certain uh, markets in Asia, you just find brands that, are, that potentially just, yeah, mix both of them. You know, it's, they transpose letters and maybe they change uppercase or lowercase. Is there any interactive effect or we don't know? I mean, that's a, a question, I guess. To me, it sounds a bit like when you really change everything, <laughs> the letter transpositions and the visual format to really make sure that, um, that it's um, yeah, that it's really a counterfeit. I mean, we we have never mixed these two in one experiment, but mm -hmm. we find strong effects when we when we change the letters, and we mm. find strong effects when we change the the letter case or the font. So yeah, I was thinking maybe maybe I'm just thinking from this, you know, additive and subadditive effects in, in multisensory research, where you, when when you sometimes have, for example, a weak effect, let's say the transposition, it's a weak one. 
and then you combine it with something that disambiguates anything, you know, something in identification, then the, the, the effect of, let's say, upper lowercase becomes even stronger than if the transposition was not there. So I, I don't know if that was something, if that's something, or I'm just, you know, just thinking about it, I guess. I mean, keeping the keep, keeping letter case the same. So what we did uh, in a in a paper in Psychonomic Bulletin Review, and um, was so we have the the original brand name, and then we transpose two letters, and then as a control we have the the brand the brand name with a format like Times New Roman, and then in another and then there was a huge a huge. Um, I mean, uh, for the brand names, for the logotypes, uh, you transpose two letters and people, they thought it was a real thing. Okay, right. so the counterfeit worked very well. And then we did exactly the same, but what we did was uh, the the format, so the everything was in black and white. So mm -hmm. let's say Amazon, it would be only, I mean, there is the arrow would be in gray and so on. So we still got an effect from the counterfeits, uh more than with with uh, times new roman let's say but it was weaker and then we also tried with another changing the font let's say what we use for instance in amazon uh we wrote amazon with the font of pepsi mm. and still people made mistakes but it was much less than with the original thing so my guess that the, the farther away you go from the original visual format the weaker the effects so if you if you change two parameters it's less likely that people are going to fall for it right okay that makes sense so i have another question and i think you know which is about about the mechanisms that underlie these these kind of effects that you have that you have found and and i think you have giving giving already like some some hints you know on why this happens you know why people uh, might fall easier you know for uh, like transpositions and so sorry might fall easier for changes in the visual format rather than transpositions and stuff like that but you have also been mentioning that in your research you uh, typically approach it from a neurophysiological neuroelectro i mean neurophysiological point of view as well right so what is happening in the brain when people are making these mistakes um, yes. <laughs> well, um, we did um, a recent study, more or less, um, exactly about this, where we recorded a bit the electrophysiological response to uh, band names that were misspelled by letter transpositions and band names that were misspelled by uh, replacements of letters. So we have Amazon, the original one, Amazon, where you uh, transpose to letters, and am seon <laughs> it's easier if you if you actually see it written down uh where you replace two letters and um what we found in the um, in the activation of the brain was really interesting actually because uh we found that um when you have a brand name that was misspelled by letter transpositions um the um the activation is really really similar to the original brand name so until even late semantic access stages, apparently um, it's the, the activation of transposed letter brand names um, yeah, simulates the one of the original brand names. So um, 
Yeah. Yeah, but basically <laughs> the brain doesn't tell them apart. Yes. Uh, but right. if you do a that parallel, is interesting. Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, because if you do a parallel manipulation with common words, uh, it is true that at, there is a, a moment in which the transpose letter zero words they look. I mean, they they produce a signal as identity as the real ones. But then there is a moment in which the system realizes. But with brand names, this moment, I mean, I guess at some point we will realize that it's badly written, but it's clearly farther in time, which is tricky because then we may buy the wrong uh, product thinking that we're buying the real thing. So that's uh, this is important for the companies to, to know. <laughs> that is very, very interesting. Okay, no, I think this has been super uh, enriching, you know, and 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 I think uh, our listeners are, are going to be enjoying a lot this podcast, uh, learning ab about identification and processing of brand names. Um, it, maybe this is a good moment to say that uh, I will be posting for our listeners the contact details of uh, both Manolo and Melanie uh, in the description of the episode. If you're interested in learning more about the research, you'll have their websites, you know, where you can access uh, the different articles that they have published and also their contact details in case you're interested. Uh, we're now getting to the end of the podcast, but I do have a couple more questions for you. So one of the things that has happened, and you mentioned one of the articles that I that I published with uh, Abhishek Pathak uh, in Dundee University in the UK um, that has happened to us is that we got contacted by by some you know uh, lawyers that were in cases you know fighting you know for these uh, counterfeit situations, but then. From a psychological perspective, when is something considered a counterfeit? Because it's like letter transposition is perceived very similarly, right? Or is processed very similarly. So in a way, you would say that's for sure, right? It's like in a way, it's, you're almost doing the same, the same, the same thing. Um, letter cases, you're doing the same thing, but people are actually better at recognizing the difference. Uh, I mean, I guess you still have the 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 protection of the brand trademark and stuff like that that you know needs to be fulfilled, but. I don't know what what can we tell from this research to these sort of legal cases. You know, where do we draw the line? And I know this is a tricky question because it's like it's it's a very difficult one. It's like you know how similar is too similar. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I think that that's a question, and I think it's it's really difficult to uh, to have a strong strict line to draw because in the end it's it for one it really depends also on the individual cases of the brand names, but uh, from what we've seen from our our research before is the more visually similar the counterfeit is uh, to the brand, the more easier it is confused with uh, with the brand itself. So um, be That's it like... even the letter case or the font, they're still really similar. Um, yeah, so I guess it would be it would have to be like a combination of you know objective visual similarity in terms of where the like the logo types and logo symbols resemble each other, but also at the processing of the logo types and the logos logo symbols because at some at some points they might be still a little bit different, yet they might be processed closer to the original thing, if that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, it it there is not like a recipe. Is that this is this? I mean, one has to study. Uh, case by case in a way it's not of course we know that if you transpose to middle two letters in the middle of a word that doesn't look good i mean they're, <laughs> they're going to lose and uh, if you change one letter like m with m like john lemon john lennon that's that's going to be bad 
And then there are some other cases. I mean, you change the first syllable, like like in those cases of Aldi, that they have some resemblance. Could be a bit of a copycat, but I wouldn't call that a counterfeit, probably, because it would be tricky to, to show. Um, so so there is, this is like shady grounds, in a way. And I think those those were kind of like the cases that we were asked because, uh, for to kind of like give advice because in some cases it was not necessarily that there was like a visual similarity between the brands, uh, like as specific as you know resembling kind of like the same reading word or or stuff like that, but they still use the same color palette, the same similar typography, you know, similar things, and not at the identification level, but at the meaning level they were resembling each other. And when they resemble each other at the meaning level, what happens is that the original brand transfer its positioning in the market to the, the, the fake one. And then the fake one benefits from that removing market from the original one. And then it becomes even trickier, right? But then how do we define that? So I, I like your answer. It's We have to look at it in a case-by-case -case basis. It, there is no like, uh, you know, clean formula to kind of like detect this, at least uh, for now. And there should be more combined work between more uh, people from the from uh, marketing business and people in in cognitive psychology or cognitive neuroscience combined efforts so build bridges in a way because in that case we will have a more definite answer which will be good for us for for theoretical reasons and for practical reasons as well that is i completely agree with that uh... Well, and my final question, and this is a question that I asked to all my my guests and, and Anders Gustafsson, who is not here with us, but he's the co-host of the podcast, also asks to many of our guests is, so, I th and I think you have already given some hints on this, but I want to see if after the conversation, there is anything else you have to say about this. So I am a star and a, an entrepreneur, and I come to you and I ask you, I want to choose the right brand name for my my company. What general tips would you give them? Melanie? <laughs> so, go, you can yes. go. Um, well, I think when choosing a brand name, it's um, you should really prioritize to um, take in mind the visual factors of how you present your brand name, take in mind the letter case, take in mind the font. Um, these are really, really important elements in the processing of brand names. Um, and not so much important in the processing of common words. So um, spend some time in um, in building a strong logo type, in um, having like a good representation of the brand in the end to um, to use a bit this effect of um, of recognizability of the brands. Yeah, do you want to add something? No, yeah, I, mean, that, I mean, it's also case by case because it depends on on the on the business strategy that the the entrepreneur has. So it's mm -hmm. not like a has to be short. So I mean, it has to be memorable in a way. I mean, one has to identify things easily. But as we have said with Hagen Das, it's hard to. I mean, it's hard to remember, mm. kind of. But at least you know you have two words. They look funny. I mean, they have like, yeah, but they look funny for everybody because actually it's not for, it's from a kind of invented languages. Uh -huh. uh, um, but it, so it's 
case by case. Typically, we know that if the if the word, I mean, from cognitive psychology, if the word doesn't have any similarly spelled words, so it looks like different, uh, it's going to be identified more slowly in general. But for brand names, maybe this is what the brand names want because mm. it will make them more unique. So, so it, it depends. I mean, there are lots of trade-offs there. Right. I, I like both answers. So there are some general, there might be some general things that we can say, such as a very, very clear, distinctive kind of like logo type, uh, logo symbol, or at least as distinctive as possible. But of course, that needs to be looked into the context of, you know, what kind of uh, offer you are presenting in the marketplace, because it might just simply, you might just simply adapt, you know, a little bit your strategy for that specific business. Okay, Manolo and uh, Melanie, this has been uh, very, very interesting. Uh, I think, yeah, I think we can conclude here. Thank you very much for being part of the podcast. I'm sure that our listeners uh, are going to enjoy it. And yeah, uh, once again, I'm going to put the details of the articles that we have discussed in the description, as well as their contact details so that you can explore more of their research and get in touch if you're interested. So thank you very much, Manolo and Melanie. Thank you. Thank you very much.